It's our prayer for all of us that the grace of God has found us, uh, that we know his touch in good or bad, whatever is going on. Uh, God's grace is real and vibrant to us. Uh, let's pray before we look into Matthew chapter 5 again today. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love that you lavish upon us. Uh, that is enough for the whole wide world. And Lord, as we look today at the outworking of that grace in the children of your kingdom, help us to be able to see that that same grace that you've lavished upon uh, everyone is how we are to be living as well. Father, may you be glorified. May your Holy Spirit give us understanding as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are concluding chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at the next section of that sermon. Uh, but just to recap a little bit of what's happening here, Jesus is giving his introductory sermon to explain to the people with the Pharisees kind of in his crosshairs um, what it takes and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And as his kingdom rolls out, what will his children look like? How will you know them when you see them? What will be distinctive about them? Uh, this is not given as a sort of um, great uh, um, moral teaching for the unbelieving world to follow. Many people look at the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, and they look at them that way. That these are just ideals for living. Uh, there's so much more. In fact, when you understand them in the way Jesus was presenting them, without the Lord, you couldn't follow them, even if you wanted to. These are for believers, and these are things that if we want to engage for the kingdom of God, truths that need to be part of us. Now, in, in doing that, Jesus is, uh, is involved in a lot of drama on this mountain. He's not just preaching a sermon. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt like the preacher was preaching at you. Anybody ever had that feeling? Yeah, okay. Well, well some of you should have that feeling, because I know you. Uh, but no, but honestly, uh, with, with to really like been pinpointing, it makes you nervous if you think it's like specifically at somebody. Like if I were to start preaching about the evils of wearing a bow tie to church, we'll look around, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> I see a bow tie. All of a sudden, that person's like the blood pressure just goes way up. And it's like, you're, you're picking on me. Well, Jesus is picking on the Pharisees. Because they had so much wrong. And it's not just them. It's anybody who puts religion as an external thing and misses the kingdom that God is trying to build inside. How many of you know a person called Stoic the Vast? Does anybody recognize that name from any animated movie? Well, who's it from? Do you know? How to Train Your Dragon. Okay. And there's a little scene going on there where Stoic is talking to his son, Hiccup. And he's trying to encourage Hiccup in what needs to change if you want to get out there and fight dragons. And Stoic kind of looks at his son, you need to change. And he makes a big sweeping gesture. And in that, Hiccup replies, you just gestured to all of me. And I love that point because basically he's saying everything about you has to change if you're going to fight dragons. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he's gesturing to them. 
in a big way that if you're going to fight for the kingdom of God, pretty much everything about you has to change because you have it all wrong. And in the chapter 5, what we looked at time after time in all these examples where Jesus is saying, you know, you're teaching people this. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's always been. And this is the law that I fulfilled so that it could be fulfilled in the children of my kingdom. That will give them what they need so they can go out and fight dragons. So that it will be uh, all of them from the toe to the head that God says, my spirit will be in them. And they will be changed. And everything about them should change. So in the big picture, what we've looked at in chapter 5, this is kind of the overall outline, and you have it in your notes that are there. These are the things, and we looked at uh, last week towards abusers. How do we show love? Uh, how are we supposed to value people through acts of love, justice, and mercy when someone's abusive towards me? And we looked at a couple different categories, and we talked about going the second mile. That's the expression when it's used of showing love or not retaliating against somebody who abuses us. And we looked at four characteristics, four areas. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, dealing with your ego. That our ego dies if we're part of the kingdom. And we don't fight back because somebody bruises that ego, because they insult us. We looked at if anyone would sue you and take your garment, my rights. My rights can be relinquished easily. I don't have to fight. I, I don't have a problem bending to others for the gospel's sake, for the kingdom's sake. We also looked at then, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what if they like infringe on your freedom? We're Americans. You don't infringe on my freedom. Jesus says, you're not American, you're a kingdom child. And some of your freedoms will be relinquished at times for the sake of the gospel. And that needs to be an okay situation. And fourthly, we looked at give to one who begs from you. What about your possessions? Are they yours? How easily can they be given away? For a child of the kingdom, it's not that hard. Because they're not mine. These things are things God's given me. I am a steward of them. So for me to share them isn't a big deal because they're not mine to begin with. So we looked at all of those areas. When people abuse us, uh, this is how we are to respond. Basically, Jesus says, anytime you want to retaliate, anytime you want to fight back, I'm taking it out of your hands. It's not your job anymore. In fact, when we do that, we are stealing from God what he says is his. And I don't know about you, stealing from God is not a wise thing to be doing. He said, vengeance is mine. Paying back people belongs to me. Don't you ever take it. For one, you don't know how. For one, you don't understand that the, the way it should be done righteously. I mean, I, don't, I can fight back pretty good if I need to. doesn't mean I've done it rightly or properly in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is the only one. God the Father is the only one who's able to give out righteous judgment. Now, in this first area about abusers, people who abuse us, it's kind of nameless and faceless. It's that if anyone does this to you. So in other words, it's not real personal in the instance of going the second mile. The Roman soldier uh, could, could just grab you. They might not know your name at all. Grab you and make you carry his package or his stuff for a mile. Relinquish the rights. You know what, sir? How about I help you another mile? 
That's not normal. But that's what happens there. So in doing that kind of a thing, it, it shows that the kingdom virtue or nature, because I would think if I were that Roman soldier, I'd want to know why. You know, I, I basically grabbed you, this nameless person, I grabbed you and pulled you in and made you do this. And you, you're going to help me an extra mile? It doesn't make sense. And it gives an avenue for the gospel to be presented when we act in a way that God says his kingdom children should. But in all those cases, it's a little bit nameless, a little bit faceless, random abuse. We take it all the time. But today it turns the corner a little bit, and it gets very personal. And it has to be personal in these cases because it's talking about your enemies. And you just take a moment and say, okay, in your life, what face comes to your mind? Who were those people that are against you even often? Now, some of you are just such nice people. You'd say, I can't think of anybody, you know, blessings. That is a wonderful place to be. But most people somewhere can come up with a person or a list of people who are antagonistic against me. And no matter what I do, they seem set against me. And Jesus is saying, when you're a kingdom child, and you can put a face to it, this is how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to act. The text that we're looking at, let's read it together. Matthew, or I'll read it to you. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot to swallow there. But we want to take it apart and we want to look at what the Pharisees were actually doing with this teaching because in all the five examples we've already looked at, the Pharisees took something that was intended to be heart level and to be lived from the bottom of your soul outward and made it an external thing, misinterpreted it, put a twist to it. This passage of scripture is no different. That's why Jesus said, you have heard it's been said by the Pharisees by implication, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I was going to kind of do a little trick to you guys and say, you should go home and study the whole Old Testament to find where that comes from. Because in reality, it's not there. And you'd be looking for a real long time. You will not find anything in the Old Testament that the Pharisees could have based this teaching on. But I want to explain to you where they got it from and how you see that they... they do this. The Pharisees' great summary of the law, and I say great because it's not, it, it, it kind of makes it something that a human, normal person could do. And by the time we're done today, you're going to say there's no normal person who lives like that. That is just not how it works. Because, And you would be right. Normal people, natural people, don't forgive and love enemies. Normal, natural people without Christ, they retaliate. But kingdom children, 
they're going to look different because they will not fit the mold of what most normal situations would. When we read Leviticus 19.18, we read these words, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is what they started with, as the Pharisees would teach. But then they would pull from this little implications and little twists. You ever have, you know, if you've raised any children, did, do you ever said to one of them, because they, like, try to nail every word you say and, and find a loophole, that you ought to be in a lawyer? You know, the way you twist and do that and, like, take you so literally. And, and you know, I, was, I loved doing that. My mom would get so frustrated at me because I would be, like, twisting and finding a way to get what I wanted to do that, that she didn't exactly say it that way, but I found a way to manipulate it. And that's what the Pharisees did with this statement. The first thing they did is they cheapened the meaning of it. Because if you look at what the Pharisees said in their teaching... Uh, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is anything what Jesus said in Leviticus 19? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you take yourself out of it, like the Pharisees did, love becomes pretty much whatever you want it to be. How many of you love to fish? How many of you love to hunt? How many of you love ice cream? How many of you love puppies? How many of you love your family? Okay. All love's equal there? Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully in the meanings of love, you don't love your family a little differently than you love puppies or you love ice cream. But the word can be thrown out and be used in anything, any fashion you want. But when I say, how many of you love those around you the way you love yourself? the way you take care of yourself, the way you look at for your own interest, all of a sudden love is def it's defined. This has to be a high level of love because I want good stuff for me. I, I want my way to be uh, the way it is. And I just want, you know, we pamper ourselves and we, we want our way. What if you loved everybody as you love yourself? Well, the Pharisees, that's not human. I don't want to do that. Let's just take yourself out of there. So let's just love puppies and love ice cream and love people and love, love be whatever we want it to be cheapen it. The second thing that they did is they restricted the meaning of it by using the word neighbor or being that childhood lawyer. What's a neighbor anyway? You know, let's define neighbor here to see what it means. And they took that definition to mean somebody who is part of the nation of Israel. And if they're not there, then I can hate them. I don't have to love them if we define neighbor that way. It was a misplaced emphasis. The original command was not intended to state whom we are to love, so as to raise the question, who's my neighbor, as the Pharisees were doing here. It's really to state what we're supposed to be doing. We are to love. By shifting the emphasis, the Pharisees brought in the question, who is our neighbor, and then limited the word of God to only those that would fit the definition of a neighbor. That gives a little background to Luke chapter 10, 
where we read these words, and Jesus is responding to the testing by the Pharisees. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the little uh, trick question that comes back from the religious leader. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Kind of referring back to this age-old issue that the Pharisees were redefining neighbor. And if you read the Bible and you look in Luke chapter 10, you're going to find that Jesus then goes into the parable about the Good Samaritan. That your neighbor basically, and you should have known this guy's already, is anyone in, in need. That you meet anytime, anywhere. It doesn't matter color of skin, race, ethnicity, uh, economic level, education level. If they have a need, they are your neighbor, and you love them as you love yourself. Pretty cut and dry. And that's what Jesus has to give the correction when he gestures to all of the Pharisees. Example number six, they got this one wrong. And he's like, you guys have to change everything about yourself if you're going to be effective for the kingdom of God. And they not only taught that you didn't have to love people outside of Israel, they taught it was your duty to hate them. You have to hate them because they are, are a threat to your way of life. They are a threat to your possessions. They are a threat to your rights. So therefore, you must hate them because they could destroy everything that you know. And they would look at places where in the Psalms especially, they're called imprecatory Psalms, where God's talking about judging people. And then he said, you know what? See, God's, God's got a hand of wrath, so it's my job to take that hand from him, take that wrath, and hate those people that he will one day judge when God has never given that over to people to do. So Jesus has to set the record straight. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has called this the supreme command. That there perhaps is no place in scripture that exalts the teaching of what kingdom children are supposed to look like than this passage of scripture does. And we need to take it in with Luke chapter 6 as well, verses 27 through 28, which is a parallel account of the same uh, speech or sermon that Jesus is giving, because it gives a couple additional elements to it that you don't see here in Matthew 5. In Luke, 20, in Luke 6, 27 and 28, we read, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, good do, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So the first commands that are given here are pray for those enemies, those faces that came to your mind. You are to pray for those who persecute you. And those particular words in the original language are present tense, and something called durative. What does that mean? It means that if this enemy persecutes you every single day that you live, and every time your mind even goes anywhere, that person is there, your prayers are supposed to meet the challenge, are supposed to be there just as often as the enemy persecutes you. Uh, I've had times where I've had difficulties, and when I think of somebody, and it's like, oh, you know, they're really bugging me. I'm not really in the mood to pray. Not praying for them. I'm brooding over it. I'm thinking about it. This is saying, you know what? 
that brooding attitude, that, that thinking of perhaps wanting even bad to happen to them is not part of the kingdom of God. That doesn't belong to them. You don't brood on it. In fact, you should be pure enough in your mind towards them that you can pray for them anytime, all the time, because you're not mad at them and angry at them so much. Now, that's a tall order. That means at no time am I supposed to have a problem so big against somebody that I can't stop and pray. And honestly, say before the Lord, Lord, they need you. Can you bless them? Now, there have been ten, plenty of times where I've prayed for God to do something. You know, it's like, you know, that, that, your judgment, you know, it's yours, Lord. I'm not going to do it, but could you hurry? Could you do something here? They really need to learn a lesson. And, and our prayers need to be pure before God so that, you know, when you're really angry and mad at somebody, you don't naturally stop and pray and say, you know, Lord, bless you. I really want to see good for you. There's a whole process that has to happen for that to even be true, to pray for those constantly who are persecuting you in what you're doing. And loving your enemies is illustrated three ways in these verses. The first one is bless those who curse you. That's fun, isn't it? To really, with your words, not say anything negative about the person who's using their words against you all the time. That is not human. That is not normal. We always want to retaliate. We always want to have a comeback. And if I'm screamed at, yelled at, cursed at, I know a few words too. And I can come back at you. And I can, I can nail you. Jesus says, you're part of the kingdom of God. My children bless those who curse them with their words. Do good to those who hate you. These are the deeds. In my words... And in my deeds, I am to constantly be loving those who would take my coat, who would abuse me in some fashion. And then pray for those who persecute you. Those who take your rights and liberties, pray for them. And we're going to see how you do that. What has to be true in my mind? Uh, this teaching has been something that the church has focused on all the way back to the days of Jesus. And a guy, um, perhaps you've heard of an early church father named Chrysostom. He was born in 347. And he would preach this passage, and he would use this. So he, he's definitely an old-timer. And in doing that, I just want to give you nine steps real quick. We're not going to labor on these or look at them. But just the, the, the steps, and just think of the progress that has to happen in your heart and mind for you to really legitimately pray for an enemy who may have abused you tremendously. And he kind of labeled them this way. And I'm going to start with number nine, because they work back to the place where you could honestly pray for an enemy at any time because your heart's in the right place with that. The first one is we're not to take evil initiatives on ourselves. That's not too hard. You humanly could do that. There's a lot of nice people out there that don't take evil initiatives onto themselves. But then the next step, he said, in this whole teaching is, we are not to avenge an evil. When the evil is against me, I'm not to go do something or imagine that I went and did something. Or imagine that somebody else went and did something. We're not to avenge an evil. In fact, we're to be quiet. We're to be quiet so that we don't say or do anything. And then he said in his next point, we are to suffer wrongfully. 
We are to suffer wrongfully. And then we are to surrender to an evildoer what he demands. Wow, that's a big deal. Then, for doing that, we're not to hate him. In fact, we are to love him. And then, we are to do good to him. And if I've made it through that trail, then I can pray for him. Because I've done a lot of things to prepare my heart and, and get my heart in the right place before God so that I can constantly pray for my enemy. Probably just as hard for his audience to hear it back there in the 300s as it is for us in, in the day that we live, because human nature hasn't changed. So in doing this, Jesus gives some reasons. He gives some flesh to his admonition to love your enemies and to pray for them. So he looks to our family tree, so to speak, and we read these words in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The first reason to be able to live like this is found here. Uh, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We've got to look at those words, so that. Because it sounds like you're somehow earning in your own strength being called a son of your father or son of, son of God, belonging to him. And it's not a meritorious thing taking place here. This is the um, idea of the proof is in the pudding, that kind of thing, is that the proof of who you are, this living like this proves that you belong to God already. Now, let's just suppose, um, for an example, to understand what's going on here. Uh, you, you come across a beautiful pond, and it's called Piranha Pond, okay? And, and let's just say Tom and Letta Dakin, they're just walking along. And Letta says to Tom, Tom, it looks like such a nice pond. Let's go swimming. And, and Tom's like, Letta, can't you see it's Piranha Pond? There's probably piranhas in here. And Letta says, you know, Tom, if you love me, you would go test the waters. You would just go in and see that there's any real piranhas that we need to worry about in there. And Tom, being the loving guy, would say, sure, honey, no problem. And he runs in so that it can be seen that Piranha Pond is safe and that so that Letta can take a swim. So the so that there is to prove it, to show it. And that's exactly what the so that means here. And I'm not going to tell you what happened to Tom. You'll have to ask him about the whole story. But it's true. The whole thing really happened. So in doing this, Jesus is saying that you pray and you love your enemies constantly, all the time. You do all these things so that you can prove and show that you are part of my kingdom. This is the proof is in the pudding. It's uh, this particular um, construction in the original language refers to an established fact that you are in the kingdom, that we are indeed sons of God, and it will become a settled, obvious fact to everybody when they see us living this way, so that people will know. The second thing about it in our family pedigree is our family legacy. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Basically, what does our family look like? 
God says, I give grace to everybody. You think some people who don't deserve the sun to shine on them? Probably quite a few of them. You think of some people who probably don't even deserve a drink of water by the way they live? Probably quite a few. God does not look up in heaven and say, you know what? I'm going to just give grace to the good ones, to the ones on my A list. The B ones, they're going to get cloudy days. The C ones, it's going to be an eclipse. They're not even going to see the sun. He could do that. He would be just. But in his love and grace, he says, you know, I pour it out. I give a beautiful world, sunrise, sunset, water, all of these things. I give to everybody because I am a gracious God. That is our family legacy, to act as God acts in these situations. has a, a couple really big ramifications to it. And let's look at those quickly, the things that need to be true of our heart. First one is our treatment of people is not according to what they are or what they do. That's a big one. My treatment of somebody else is not supposed to be based upon who they are or what they've done. If God did it that way, we'd all be in big trouble. There'd be no one to make it into heaven. When God loves us, he loves us as enemies. We've been estranged and pulled away from the kingdom of God. But he loved us in that situation. Secondly, our love is to be motivated by their condition and need. What do they need? They need Jesus. The uglier the, the actions of the person, the deeper the need seems to be. They need Jesus Christ. They need to have their sons forgiven. And that should be the issue that, that drives us, that motivates us, not who they are or what they do. They need light. They need sun. They need water. They're thirsty. So in doing this, there's two key factors that have to be true of us in our love for us not to be taking all this evil personally and, and, and harboring it inside. And the first one we're going to call a disinterested love. There are times I've been nice to somebody because I saw them eating ice cream. I've been nice to somebody because... And you could fill in a lot of things. And I think if I say something nice, they'll share. They'll give the blessing. And I'll go, oh, that really looks like a great bowl of ice cream you got there. Oh, do you want some? Oh, I, no, no, really? Okay, I will. You know, it's not that kind of thing. There's a disinterested kind of love that even if I get nothing by showing this kind of love, it is still something that I will do. It has no uh, chance, perhaps, even, of coming back to me in a good way. And this is a hard thing sometimes, because sometimes there are a few of us who really struggle if we've done something for somebody, and they don't even say thank you. Like, oh, I did this for you? You say thank you? See if I ever do anything for you again. Or they seem a slightly ungrateful. Right away, we want to pull back because our ego wanted to get fed a little bit. We wanted to be thanked, and we wanted to be recognized for this great, wonderful thing that we did. And if we don't get it, we're sometimes very unlikely to repeat. Jesus is saying, when you give with my kind of love, it doesn't matter if you even ever got a thank you. It doesn't even matter if you were being um, treated totally ungrateful. When Jesus showed this kind of love to us, he came unto his own. His own received him not. They pushed back, they killed him. The kind of love that God is calling for for his kingdom children is disinterested. 
I'm not doing this so I feel better about myself. Or I can brag about it in some fashion. And then it's a detached kind of love. You love even if they bring me pain. The effect that it has upon myself is not an issue because you can't really hurt somebody who has died. And I want to explain what I mean by that. That in Christ, the old self is supposed to be put to death. We die daily, Paul says. So that when we live, we're living in a detached kind of way, separated from the ego. Separated from the hurt that came my way. Now, some of the difficult truths of the Bible are called positional truths. They're truths that you grow into as you know Jesus Christ. There's certain things that you learn at salvation and you know you're forgiven and you're heading in a certain way and it's like, I got this, I got this. But then there comes a few things that are principles that are spiritually true and your mind goes, boom, I don't get that. Grace is like that. And God teaches grace uh, in bits and pieces, and little grace light bulbs go off in your life as you live, and like, oh, I see grace. Oh, I see it bigger. And positional truths are like that. They're light bulb moments. Nobody ever hears one and grabs it right off the bat and says, ah, oh, I got this. Colossians has one of these such passages, and uh, we're going to come back to this one in a minute. Loving actions become exchanged for spiteful ones. That's another um, picture of what takes place there. But in Colossians, we read these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Part of our positional truths. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a positional truth. That is something that is true of the believer that we grow into the understanding of it. But when I know that I am dead to self and that my life has been put into Christ and that I am protected, I can take a lot because I'm not on the line anymore. The me that would have been so touchy and so easily offended and wanting to fight back, is, is I just killed that. I've, I've somehow detached myself from myself because I've died in Christ. Those things that would have grabbed me don't because my affections are up towards God. My affections are in a different way. I'm in a new kingdom so I can live in a different kind of way. I want to illustrate it this way. When I was a teenager, um, our youth group used to go to Maine all the time. And there were these cabins on Moosehead Lake that we would rent and the youth leaders would be in there, and we'd have different rooms, and they weren't nice cabins at all. They didn't necessarily have anything but studs and joists, and, and, and the rooms were kind of open. So my friend and I, his name's Dave, if he's listening anywhere, uh, he, he's in one room, and we had this big queen bed, and we had to share it. You know, not real cool, but we had to. We had to share it. And on the other side, we're in high school. On the other side of the wall is the college guy. And his name is Ray. He's the one we wanted to like us because we wanted to be in with the college guys. So you got this little opening above the wall. 
And being high school kids, you could imagine that that opening was a great place to be able to throw things onto the other people while they're sleeping. So we got a whole arsenal of stuff ready to throw into the other room, and so did he. And he's being bigger, he's tougher, he probably, you know, he's a big, big guy, and we're just little high school kids. So we're kind of fighting out of our weight class, okay? He really had the upper hand. So we're throwing things over, and there'd be occasional rocks and different plates and things, and a couple dead mice now and then, you know, stuff that high school kids would do. So it, 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 this little battle starts going on. In fact, I have a picture of how we had to defend ourselves all night long so that we could sleep because who knew what was coming over the wall next and it would keep coming and keep coming and we slept all night this this is me I got that little caterpillar thing going on there that, that's back in high school and we slept that way and somebody had to take a picture so that we could make it through the night because of the stuff coming but you know we're we're pretty feisty kids and we're always wanting to fight back so we pulled out of our little suitcase one of these guys. And we wanted to impress Mr. Ray on the other side of the wall. So we would like, we would stick a real hand over like that. And he'd try to whack it with a fireplace poker and he'd be hitting it. Well, eventually we'd switch it out because it kind of hurt a little. Put the hand over the thing. And as we're doing it, you know, he'd take it and whack it. We would take it. He would take it and whack it. And he's sitting over there as the big college kids like, these kids are tough. He, he didn't know, and he's, he's hitting, he's abusing it, he's doing like all kinds of things that should have inflicted pain, but it didn't because we were detached. And, and it wasn't until the next morning that he realized, he started getting a little worried, like, I'm going to stop messing with these guys. You know, I'm doing all this stuff to them, and it's not hurting them. And he found out the next morning, and then he really took it out on us. The point, when you're detached, you can take a lot. And it doesn't mean as a Christian you don't feel the pain, but the, faint, the pain that a believer feels is redeemed pain. It's pain that Jesus is a part of. It's a pain that you know he's taking and will make it good. He will use it to build. He will use it for his own righteousness so that as we are detached in this situation, our love, we died with Christ. We're in him so that all of a sudden my ego isn't on the line. My own personality isn't on the line. What's on the line? I'm in Jesus. And whatever he can take, I can take because I'm part of him and I belong to him. You can't hurt something that's dead. And that's how you can love your enemy. That your love for God and your understanding of who you are in Christ kind of separates you from all of those attacks and the need to feel like, I need to defend myself. I need to fight back. Jesus didn't. And as he is our redeemer, the persecution that comes, what we feel, is redeemed pain. And that's very different because you have a redeemer living with you that can help you take it and handle it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, Citizens of the kingdom are people who have been taken out of this present evil world. They are placed in a position apart and live on a higher level. They belong to a different kingdom. They are a new people, a new creature, and a new creation. Because of that, 
They see everything differently and react in a different manner. They are no longer of the world, but outside of it. They are in a position of detachment. Therefore, says Christ, you can become like God in this respect, that you will no longer be governed exclusively by what other people do to you. You will have something within you that will determine your conduct and your behavior. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. It's telling us Jesus fulfilled the law in us to be able to separate us from reacting and living the way the rest of the world does so that they know that we belong to God. The sobering alternative. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That was not a compliment. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The sobering reality is if I don't live like a kingdom child, I am no better than the rest of the world. I have nothing to offer them because I'm just like them. You couldn't have picked more despised people to the Jewish folk at the day than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. They were the ones that would welcome people who welcomed them. It's no big deal for any of us to treat others well when they treat us well. The kingdom child can treat others well who hate them, who despitefully use them. And the end verse, the end part of it, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Anybody find that tremendously encouraging? Seriously? This is the final answer to the first part of Jesus' sermon? That I am supposed to be perfect because he's perfect and anything less means I'm second rate? Don't think of it that way. This is a tremendous encouragement going on here. Not only is it a conclusion to the chapter that encompasses all six examples before it, it really speaks tremendously to loving your enemies and those who would persecute you. It's a restatement of verse 45, where it says, you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is the proof. This is what it shows. It's drawn from Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, where it says, thou shalt be perfect, upright, sincere uh, with the Lord. And to understand the word perfect there, it's a Greek word called telos. It doesn't mean Perfect in the sense of moral perfection. It doesn't mean that you always get it right, as if something is completely perfect. But what it means is it's those that give themselves to the law of love without holding back. Included in this would be enemies that we could show genuine love to all in, to borrow a term, that some card players use, that I am all in just as my heavenly Father is all in. How much did he love us? What did he do to show the extent of his love? What this verse is saying, you have to be as all into this as your Father is. That's what a kingdom child is like. Somebody who is, belongs to him, they're not perfect when Paul says, uh, in another passage of scripture, uh, that, that he's striving 
for the kingdom of God. He says, not that I've already attained or I've become perfect, but I'm reaching, I'm pressing forward, I'm all in. It's the same word there about perfect. It's not a place where I've arrived, because Paul says that. He says, I've not arrived, but I am all in on trying to get there. I am putting everything I have into this kingdom, and I want to be as all in in my love as God is all in with his love. In all those pictures, we are to be as into it and wanting it as much as our Heavenly Father does as well. What keeps us, the question might be asked, from being all in? What makes us want to retaliate, to fight back, to harbor grudges, to think bad things about our enemy? What makes us avoid certain people and not even want to come near them? I want to submit to you the reason we do that is because we're chained we are bound, we are prisoners to the old self. We've never really died all the way. There's a part of that old self that wants to stick it to him still, that wants to justify ourselves. And, and that as long as those chains are still there and we're still building our kingdom and we're on the line, we will forever find it difficult to be able to truly love our enemies and pray for those who persecute to do good. When those chains begin to break and we become detached and disinterested in, in, in ourselves and, and seeing vindication the way we want to see it, all of a sudden we're going to find that we're able to do this because the chains have been broken. I see the grace of God to free my heart. So now... I can show grace to them. But as long as I'm still bound with the old self, still as I love my old self so much, and my old kingdom is what I'm all about, I will never do this. Because I will always be on the line one way or another. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, as long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, watchful, and jealous. He is therefore always immediately reacting to what others do. But when self is dead and we see ourselves in Christ, the chains fall off. Grace melts our heart. And grace is what we give to others even as they are persecuting us. There's a lot here in Matthew 5. A lot about the Pharisees that had to change. All of them. And the same true is true of us when we come to Christ. All of us need to change completely. Matthew 5 gives us kind of the blueprint of what a kingdom child will look like. And it was given to us to lay our lives over top of it and say, how closely am I aligning with this? This is my DNA. If I'm not lining up well, I know where the work needs to be done. I need to break those chains that bind me so that I can be wholly all in before God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace, for your love. I thank you for the example given to us in this sermon of what a kingdom person is supposed to look like. And Father, for many of us, when we put ourselves over top of it, we know there's a long way to go. And I know, as we can say as Paul, that we've not yet attained, but help us to press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. May your grace help us there. In Jesus' name.
Amen.